Today's episode of Rates and Barrels is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 89. It's April 23rd. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Eno, how's it going for you on this Thursday? It is going good. I'm sore, 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 sore. I ran my new max eight and a half miles yesterday, and uh, it took me an hour and 20 minutes. And, you know, actually, at the end, I felt like, you know what? Like, why don't I just go for 13 and get this whole thing over with? <laughs> so, good. At the, it's good and bad news. The bad news is I'm sore today. The good news is uh, I feel like I could run 13 next week if I if I needed to. So, uh, I would just have to stop running for a week, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After 13, a little breather would probably go a long way. But uh, it's cool that you're you're making that progress. I've been way too lazy for the circumstances. I need to really find something to motivate me. Uh, even a, a future race would, would do anything. Like I, I need a goal of some kind. I need someone to say, you have to be able to do this by then. And it could be anything. It could be push-ups, yeah, sit-ups, I think or I actually have a little bit of friendly competition with my wife. Ah, okay. So uh, usually on the weekend, uh, she'll go for a long run. And she's been pushing to seven and a half. And uh, so that's all I've got is staying out in front of her. And eventually we were talking about running, um, you know, half marathon together. But A, with kids, it's hard to both be gone running for an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And B, like, she's not that into running with other people. (laughs) Even her husband. (laughs) Just just likes to be alone. I I can understand that, though. I get that, yeah. Therapeutic, right? I mean, I... It's one of those times where I I do have a kind of a deep appreciation for nature. So if I'm out running around and it's a, just a particularly nice day, and maybe it's even at a certain time of day or the sun's about to set, you know, you just catch certain views of certain parts of familiar places, and it just looks amazing. And running is one of those times where where I experience that. It's kind of a a different sort of joy, but it's also one of the few times where I'm completely alone and I'm not really thinking a lot about work or something on a screen in front of me as well so I, I could see not wanting to run in a group but also if i were constantly by myself at home i'd probably want to run with a group for the social aspect so i think it can it can work both ways yeah i think that social aspect doesn't count if it's your husband who you see all, all the time when you're sheltering in place <laughs> but i i uh I also think that like pacing is an interesting thing. Like I started out at the beginning. Uh, so if I run three miles, I can run at eight and a half mile, uh, eight and a half minute miles. If I run my sort of more basic four to five minute, uh, four to five mile uh, runs, I run it between nine and nine and a half. So when I re- what I realized on my long runs, the last few miles are ten. So I said on this one, I'm going to start out at ten. And really try to keep that pace. And what was the the weirdest thing about the feeling was that for the first half of it, I felt like I was had to actively try to run slower to to do ten because my body was like, "Hey, we're starting out. Let's go." 
but it really served me well uh, because it, I had more energy in the second half. But in the second half, I felt like I had to run faster to get to 10. <laughs> so uh, I definitely like really stayed on top of my pace and ended up at like 10 uh, almost on the dot and uh, or it was like 955 or something and um, and and still had a little bit of energy left at the end so uh, but I've been dragging a little bit of butt since so it's it's I mean something to do you know I I, I feel um, at this point I feel like I'm ready uh, I'm chomping at the bit to kind of like you know I kind of thought that may one by may one we'd have some clarity about opening up and i think we are kind of getting to that i mean we're starting to get benchmarks in different cities and different uh, states um you know the national government is 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 pushing us to to open up so um i i have a feeling that may not may one but sometime in early may we're going to start hearing more concrete proposals uh, about how baseball is going to go forward yeah, we'll have to see how things progress in the next couple of weeks, but you do get the sense that that's where uh, a lot of places are, are headed. You know, The time in place has been tricky for a lot of people, and, and for a variety of different reasons, of course, but uh, it does feel like we're going to make some progress somewhat soon. There is a, a, a cost in lives in the, in the lockdown. I read that uh, for every... This is historical uh, data, so it's not some sort of projection. For every... 1% rise in uh, unemployment, there's a 1% rise in suicide. And we just went from 35 to 15%, like overnight. Um, I've read some data on uh, child abuse and domestic abuse uh, being through the roof. Um, you know, this has a real cost. The lockdown has a real cost. And I'm not saying that, you know, they're equal. Uh, I'm just saying, like, if we've done some work flattening the curve, then at some point uh, we need to discuss how we're going to open up rather than uh, just focus on that bit. So, um, you know, I, I think there's some hope for it. I know that some people think, uh, you know, there was a poll on Fangraphs that said, you know, was asking people, you know, how much baseball is going to be played and when will it be played? Uh, and when I responded, the uh, number one response was something like 76 to 100 games um, starting in June or July. But the number two response was zero games. I don't know, man. There's just there's so much money at stake. Um, and there are there's such an uneven there's such a regional quality to this situation that I think that they could find a region in which to work. So I think that it'll be Arizona only. Uh, the Florida numbers aren't great, and um, splitting it into two or three places, I think, makes it harder to do. Um, and Arizona, of the three states that they've discussed, is probably the best off. Um, so I, I like I know personally that you know Northern California. When you look at, and this is another thing that annoys me about the situation, the data is bad. The the like the way that people are chopping up the data, the way that people are presenting the data, uh, the data itself. There's a lot of bad data out there. I mean, you know, if I watch like a lefty mainstream media, they they have a thing up there: eight hundred thousand people have been infected, forty thousand are dead. That gives you this this sense that like, oh my god, five percent of the people who are infected die. Jesus Christ, you know? But that's right. wrong. That's totally wrong. Like, there's no way that only 800,000 people were infected. Right. What we've, we've really struggled to do from day one is test enough people. 
That's right. That's a so huge part of the problem. We don't know how many people are asymptomatic. We we don't we don't know. Like there's and when we do this variables. and when we do something when we do something that's a little bit more like like targeted in scope a little bit something that like okay so they have the Santa Clara antibody test they went out here in my in my uh, neighborhood and they and, and they like they 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 tested a bunch of people and they said oh fifty more pe- fifty times more people are infected than we think uh, because of the antibody test. And then they also just found out here in Santa Clara that someone died of, of coronavirus in January here. Right. So it's been around longer than we think. More people have it than we think. And even if that study was flawed, one in eight pregnant ladies in New York had coronavirus. So I think there's a likelihood that almost 10% of America has had it. Right, which totally changes the mortality rate from it. and, and you know it's, Everything. You're right. There There is a lot of bad information out there because we're just missing so much data and i'm surprised yeah i'm surprised by how bad this data is dude we're talking about life and death we're not recording that well i don't like i don't understand that like i i can't believe that like like you know the governor of new york is going on and being like this we have this record of this many people dying but that's that's not a good number because we're not even recording how many people died in their houses what like why isn't there proper accounting of these things so um, I've, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to chop up the data. Um, there's a, a Twitter account that I follow, uh, who usually does baseball things. Uh, but in this time we all, uh, all do different things. Uh, okay. At frag F A R G underscore I D M A. Um, and he's just using his, his data skills to kind of, uh, do an inferred infection rate and inferred death rate by, uh, accounting for certain things and 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 comparing countries and stuff. I, I just find what he's doing pretty pretty interesting. Um, and you know, it's so su- surprising there hasn't been more people who have these data skills in our space uh, that have tried to clean up this data and and work with it. But um, anyway, uh, long story short, I believe in uh, eighty one to a hundred games. Um, I still I'm still holding on to that July fourth date. Uh, July 4th means uh, spring training starts in mid-June, which means in mid-May um, they have a proposal that, you know, they have to get the MLBPA's approval on, they get the doctor's approval on. Anthony Fauci's out there saying it's possible to play baseball. So, um, you know, I think it's going to happen. Yeah, it's uh, a long, long road to say that there is still reason to be optimistic. And uh, fortunately, the Triple Crown League that I put together continues i had another draft last night it was the al only auction that looked like fun it was it was a lot of fun and one thing that i have taken away from our current situation of not being able to have drafts and auctions in person uh, and using zoom more for aspects of my life and which i never previously thought i would use zoom <laughs> is that it's actually really i hate fun. the kid stuff the kid zoom stuff what are you saying I mean, sorry it, it probably sucks for that kind of stuff yeah but it's actually so Previously, for years, for several years, we've had this technology for at least, I don't know, three or four years at least where it's been good enough to work during a draft, right? It's amazing how much more fun an online draft is when you just turn on the video feed and talk to your friends while you're building your team. Most of the people in the auction last night jumped in the Zoom room at one point or another, and that added a level of enjoyment to the online draft that, frankly... I think was there all along, but we never thought to do that until we had to, until we 
we missed mm-hmm. social interaction. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm just glad we did it. Like it was, it was just purely fun and, and therapeutic. And I think that there's probably actually something about a draft that leads to a better Zoom experience because I've noticed this with, you know, I've got a Zoom happy hour, uh, G's up. Uh, <laughs> my wife my wife saw that because my friend actually sent out a, a calendar invite to it. <laughs> and my wife was like, is that like G's like geezers? <laughs> and I was like, gangsters, come on, wife. We're gangsters, not geezers. And, uh, and we're gangsters that send out calendar invites for our Zoom happy hours now. Um, but <laughs> the, what I've noticed is that like when we're at like four or five, we're starting to get to the point where it's hard to know who to, who talks. And I've been trying to work with Casey McLean, who's a, uh, a Seattle-based uh, comedian. Um, we've been trying to think of like how can we sort of have that bar feeling how can we how we know he knows comedians i know people in beer he knows people in beer like could we bring these people together and have like a bar experience and the the problem is somewhere between like four and five and ten plus nobody knows when to talk and you either have to do something structured it's like i'm the host and i'm gonna and now i'm gonna point to you and now you talk and now i'm gonna point to you and now you talk i have a question you know is that your lester holt voice yeah (laughs) what it sounded like <laughs> well uh i guess um but yeah that's my ho- that was at least my host voice um and so oh god we should like flip roles for one of these podcasts and i pretend to be the host and oh we're do definitely that doing that now we're absolutely <laughs> ma- I'm making a note right now switch roles and voices <laughs> show. and voice the voice thing would be tough but we could try it <laughs> um but uh uh so the, the 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 whole problem is when to talk and i could see how in a draft there's like a natural when to talk right like oh i have to i have to i have to pick soon so i'm gonna stop talking mm-hmm. so you have this sort of like the person who's furthest away from picking gets talks a little bit and and then the people talk with him and as as soon as like they get closer to picking they have to like they have to they stop talking right yeah, and then for the, an auction, I think everybody was kind of busy enough watching the bidding on one part of their oh, screen. Oh, it was an auction, so it wasn't a snake. So you, I'm thinking of a snake, you kind of like, you could stop talking. I, I did a snake draft with, where we did the Zoom, and it was kind of like whoever was furthest away from drafting usually was talking. Totally makes sense to do it that way with the snake, but with an auction, what naturally happens is uh, you'll have certain players who come up that a few people in the room are just not interested in, and they'll start talking about something else that happened a few players before that. <laughs> or uh, if you're eating dinner, uh, Jeff Erickson was was eating some some tacos, and Dallas Keuchel was nominated. <laughs> he goes, "There's a taco player." <laughs> he just took a bite of his taco and just stopped stopped bidding completely because he didn't want them. So, so it's table talk. I mean, in a way, it uh, allows for uh, some of that skill that. I've been trying to develop myself, which is to read the room better. Um, but I was watching your auction with um, was it was it Gray in the AL labor? Uh, yeah, NL labor. Yep, NL labor. And he would sometimes say things like, "Oh, I don't know," and like, like just like throw out a name like he doesn't care about it. And you're like, 
I don't know, dude. <laughs> those were all guys he liked every single yeah, time. Exactly. Those those were horrible bluffs. And I, I, with Gray, I'm not sure if he was doing that just because it's funny to right, have bad right, bluffs right. He and give it away. A funny guy like that. Yeah. I, I think it, it could was just probably more that. Yeah. I don't think it was just a, a a leak that he was unaware of. I think it was just kind of an intentional, just having fun <laughs> with it sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, someone declares someone a taco player, like. You know, that's one less person who's bidding on the guy. I mean, it's information, but it also makes it more fun. It's just more fun, you know, and, and the way people will throw a guy like, you know, intentionally mispronounce or do a nickname or, you know, be like, you know, the guy I like the least personally, but his game is good. You know, like whatever. They'll say something about the player, you know, it just makes it more fun. You're right. So the the wrinkle for last night's auction, it was a 15 team AL only. The rosters were smaller. So instead of corner and middle being separate, it was just infielder. It was four outfielders instead of five. It was one catcher instead of two, only one utility, and then seven pitchers. So we only bought 18 players because there's 15 teams, but it's still, compared to a 12-team league where you buy 23, it's only six players off the total you normally buy. So the challenge, the depth was basically the same, but the shape of the player pool over a 15-team only league is very different. And I, I kind of feel like um, you may have had some influence in, in what I did in this case because I bought John Means. And, um, <laughs> you know, when you buy fewer players, you don't lower the budget, numbers go up. Um, so top-end players, you know, Mike Trout, I think, was a $55 player last night. Uh, John Means went for 10 bucks. Wow. Because that's what pitchers like John Means were going for. And also, early on, for the first hour, there were probably too many values pretty consistently. It wasn't just a lot of spending for a a pocket at the very beginning. It was minus three, minus five, and people didn't catch on quickly enough. And then we ended up having a ton of money late. So so all the $5 players became $10 players all of a sudden. Yeah, that happened, and and there were some ten or twelve dollar players who became twenty dollar players. I mean, it was mm. it was wild, and it was mostly the same group that we had in a mixed league setting the week before, where we bought twenty three players instead of eighteen. It was strange because the mixed auction had the disciplined feel of an only league auction, and the only league last night actually felt more like Tout Wars mixed, where people and just had that wild spending. Video had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may have. I, I I think it was just the unusual league size, though. I I think well, it, that it, yeah. I think that had something to do with it. But I I actually liked it as an improvement on the twelve team original roto. And I I don't bring up the old rules to to crap on them. I, I bring them up because if we were making the same game that Glenn Wagner and and the founding fathers of roto, uh, Dan O'Kran. If we were making that today, it wouldn't look the same as the twelve-team mono leagues that have been played for forty years. We we would, we would build the game differently, and this is one possible way it would happen. I think there's way more people playing. So just just in terms of like amount of people you can bring to the table, like of course we're gonna have twenty-team leagues, and you know, yeah, I think the default would obviously still be mixed. It wouldn't be only, but mm-hmm. even with the only league, the the active roster spots would be different. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah. And like, hasn't the game itself expanded? Like the player pool? Yeah, the we're player pool about... is a little deeper because there are more teams in the league. More teams, now yeah. Than there were then. The rosters, I think, are a tick bigger now. So yeah, we went to twenty six, and I think we've added like four teams since then. So yeah, I think that uh, the natural progression is to deeper leagues. Also, there's uh, just like a, I think there's something with the the internet has done. I've talked a little bit about this before between broadcasting and narrowcasting. You know, I think in the seventies and eighties, we there were there was broadcast TV, and you watched you know four or five channels, and you had a, a a better shared experience with the rest of the world. Like we all watched Care Bears or whatever it was. You know what I mean? I, I say that because that is a missing part of my childhood. I didn't have a TV till fourth grade, so um, I don't know if it was Care Bears, but whatever it was, <laughs> like we all you're we jealous all, of whatever we were watching. Well, yes, I am. <laughs> but uh, we had some sort of shared experience with broadcast. But now with the internet uh, and with cable, the cable TV started this, but then the internet uh, broadened this thing, which is we now narrow cast where we like know exactly what we want and we can go as deep as we want into that thing. And so we went from wanting to have a 10 team league where it was only the stars and we all got to, you know, fight over, uh, you know, the very best of the players to, I think just the the way we consume media pushing us towards let's have a 30 team league, you know, with, with 25 man rosters you know? <laughs> where you're like, let's do it exactly like they do it in baseball and let's do salary cap leagues and let's do this and that. So um, I, I think it's a natural progression and, and it, and it fits uh, what, what we've done as a, as a people. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And uh, again, try new formats, but, regardless of the formats you try turn on zoom during your online drafts and auctions <laughs> going forward it makes them a lot more fun you don't just feel like you're staring at a computer screen for five hours by yourself and, and don't be sad if your wife makes fun of you for the zoom calendar invite you probably deserve that <laughs> right i mean like we're being completely fair like uh, maybe <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't have done a calendar invite, but I also get yelled at by my wife by not using the calendar enough. So <laughs> I got in trouble for that literally an hour ago, <laughs> almost daily. That comes up now. You didn't put rates and barrels on the calendar. <laughs> no, that one, that one repeats at the same time every week, yeah, but good. usually it's the, uh, it's one-offs and occasionally it's drafts that, uh, that I get in trouble. Oh, yeah. I get scolded for not having those on there, which, I should put those on there because I'm basically useless in the house for five hours. And that's <laughs> out of respect for other people in the home. Um, I should probably put that on the calendar. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit, or tuxedo for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tuck shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. The Black Tux has an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. 
Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code DRAFT. That's theblacktux.com code DRAFT for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Um, and just to clarify something, uh, I, this, this question has come in via email a lot. Uh, are we the two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? No. You know and I are not <laughs> the founders of the Black Tux, but we uh, appreciate that they are sponsoring this podcast. So I, I own a tux, actually, um, and uh, two different 70s frilly colored shirts to go with it. Not surprised. That one, one salmon and one light blue, a little bit like the Dumb and Dumber combo. <laughs> and goal set. Both shirts have been shadow banned by my wife. I, in fact, think she hid them. She may have burned them. Yes. You, you know what she might be doing <laughs> on those runs? She might be taking your things and burning them somewhere. <laughs> Dropping them off in donation piles. Yeah, that. that's probably more likely. I mean, that's that's the, like, honestly, if you have clothes you don't want, even if they are ugly, um, <laughs> give them someone to you know, put them in a bin. Give them to someone in need. Don't burn them. Or if your you know your favorite player gets traded or signs a contract with a new team, maybe don't burn that. Just give it away if you're not going to wear it right. anymore. Uh, I have but, a I have a hard time giving away uh, clothes though, and it's it's always this like mind game where I'm like, well. You know, you haven't worn that shirt since you lived in New York. That was 10 years ago. And then I'm like, well, you know, I like to wear that shirt under a sweater. It doesn't, I don't like it by itself, but I like it under a sweater. So if it gets cold enough, I will wear it under a sweater. You know, you live in California now. It's never cold enough for a long sleeve shirt and a sweater. <laughs> I'm like, but what if I visit New York? <laughs> the the uh, the very rational side of you the 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 angel on your right shoulder I guess in this case is using the voice you're going to use when you lead host this show but <laughs> that was lead host voice very clearly oh okay so we got some baseball stuff we do um, we do have some baseball stuff we got a question from Scott oh okay it's an email and it reads mm-hmm. hey guys your show is by far the best baseball podcast going. Thank you, Scott. We appreciate that. Uh, when you refer to pitchers gaining more velocity in spring training, is it basically better mechanics attributed to driveline type philosophy, players in better shape, or getting a new coach or joining a new organization with the increase in speed? Does it carry greater risk of injury now that they are suddenly throwing harder? Thanks for your time, Scott. There is. There is, because either they are throwing closer to their max, which is stressful on them um or i mean that's I, that's what i would guess that they're if they're not throwing if their max has moved as well as their sitting velocity then maybe it's less clear uh but also just throwing harder has been shown to put more stress on the elbow so i would say i'm not nothing in baseball is unqualified but i would say a slightly qualified yes there's there's more risk i think of uh there's plenty of examples of guys jesse han uh had a big velocity increase and then just went in the tank um a ryan bull rookie uh had like a two or three mile an hour increase last year and and went in the tank um you know even guys that were on my list of um 
spring increasers this year. Let me see if I can find that one. I think there was people that I didn't discuss because I was like, oh, that guy got injured already. Um, I didn't didn't have that one ramped up because I thought, well, we're we're doing this without a rundown. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. (laughs) Yeah, usually I say on this episode, we're going to talk about these things, and then we talk about most of those things, but um, I did not do that. So that's... uh, that was the the cue for things being a bit less structured with this episode. Well, anyway, there. I, I would say yes. I would say yes. That's a, that's a risk. Naturally, the uh, intersection where all of the things happen has a street sweeper in it right now. A guy walking across the intersection with a leaf blower on his back and a bicyclist all at the same time. And amazingly, my dog Hazel sees all of these things and has been surprisingly <gasps> Not- quiet barking she's been a very good girl so far now i've just jinxed it and she's gonna bark her head off any second here's the here's another name tyler Beatty was up 2.7 miles per hour this spring i remember hearing this um the keith law show last week so keith law's got a podcast now it's on the athletic it's everywhere you listen to podcasts you should check it out the interview he had he had an interview with eddie bain last week and he's had a long career in baseball. Most recently, I think he's with the Red Sox. And he was talking about Chris Sale's velocity going up before his injury in 2018. Remember, time's Mm -hmm. all all messed up. And he was just recalling that story, and he remembers being at that game and saying, this is bad. This is too much. Like, this is not... He should not be throwing this hard because he doesn't usually throw this hard. And there's still this difficulty in scouting and in the organizations and I think overall is that do you really want to tell a guy to not throw that hard or to throw less hard than he's throwing? Yeah, because throwing hard is better. <laughs> right. Like it's 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 just drilled into us that that's what you should do if you can do it. So just let it go. But what uh, what year were you talking about again? I think it was late oh. 2018 that he was referring to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The velo spiked, right? Like it was maybe in August. Yeah, dude, it went, uh, he was, he'd been sitting 95 for a while, 94, 95, and then he went up to 97.7 in June, and July was 98, and August was 98.2. He's not supposed to throw that hard at this point. And then he dropped all the way to 92.8 in September. It's almost like, and and I'm spitballing here just because I don't have a perfect analogy, but it's almost like the arm loosens up more at a certain point, and then you get this extra velocity, but that loosening is the beginning of an injury process. Hmm. Like there's a cliff or something. Like you can build up and you can build up and you can build up, and then something happens where there's some tearing or something, right? Like there's definitely something, uh, rubber band effects in your body. And so, you know, you could see like, right before the rubber band snaps, it having like more being able to go back further and spread further, right? Uh, but it already having like a little tear in it. Um, <clears throat> and it's also interesting that, uh, you know, versus his max, in 2017, his maximum velo was 99 to 100. In 2018, his maximum velo was 99 to 100. Uh, he had one month where it was over 100. So... His max velo didn't change much. He just threw really close to his max velo. He just decided in 2018 to to throw harder. 
Um, and and that Glenn Flies definitely has a study about like the closer you throw to your maximum, the 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 the, the worse it is for your elbow. So, um, yeah, I mean, I could come up with a, a list. It's not something that I could do right now, really quickly, but you know, it is something that uh, we could look at. You know, early in the season, who's who's throwing close to their max, especially in tandem with you know who's got a velo bump and who's throwing close to their max you know what i mean right um i do wonder i hadn't thought of this before uh, what our data is going to look like if it's an arizona only strategy because right now there's only two of the 13 or 14 parks in arizona that are equipped for TrackMan, which is yesterday's data uh tracker so i don't even TrackMan doesn't even have a, an agreement with mlb as a group so what is our data going to look like when we were trying to analyze this game? Oof, we're supposed to have about. to switch to Hawkeye, right? And I, was that... And Hawkeye's not in minor league parks. Yeah, not in spring parks then either. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be flying blind. Although, you know, to some extent, we'll be, uh, we'll be able to reverse engineer some stuff. Um because we, if we do get distances and, and stuff like that, we might be able to say, well, in the past, these things, these this hang time plus this distance um, would have meant that he was hitting at 98 or something. So we might be able to reverse engineer, um, you know, some of the exit below stuff. But um, it, it actually allows for a little bit of a transition to the other thing I wanted to talk about, um, which is that Jeff Zimmerman released his... Um, baseball savant uh stat cast based projections um where he only used uh stat cast things that have been proven to matter like barrel percentage launch angle max exit velocity sprint speed uh combined with a little bit of uh, plate discipline stats to to look at what a model that just based on that and didn't look at previous results what what kind of like previous uh back of the baseball card type results uh you know what kind of projection system would spit out and you know it's going to be it's going to be fine for us going into 2020 to use these numbers uh but what is it going to look like going into 2021 when we don't have these numbers <laughs> <laughs> uh but at the beginning of his article he said something very interesting which is he talks about the model thinker by scott page it's a it's a page uh a, a book he read and he says, uh, do not put too much faith in one model. The lesson should be clear. If we can construct multiple diverse, accurate models, then we should make very accurate predictions, evaluations, and choose good actions. So uh, Jeff Zimmerman's thinking behind this is going to save us in 2021, too, which is that we may not be able to use the StatCast data in 2021, depending on what the 2020 season looked like. But because we created that model, we may have learned something that can improve our regular models. So... Um, you know, I think that's that was an interesting quote I wanted to share. And then he had his, uh, he has a piece up on Fangrass with his his top ten uh, best and worst projected hitters by but with Statcast and you know Trout, Alvarez, Betts, uh, the top three uh, by OPS. Not too surprising. Um, maybe Betts uh, hitting thirty five homers according to Statcast is a little surprising, but I don't think so. He's moving to a stadium that should be very conducive to his home run power. Um, Austin Meadows is fourth. That might be a little bit surprising. 36 homers and 14 stolen bases by StatCast. Uh, that suggests that uh, maybe he is worth all the uh, the heavy investment he's getting. Mm-hmm. Gary Sanchez is a StatCast darling. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that uh, StatCast says he'll hit 289. Uh, 
Um, Judge, 270, 37 homers. Stanton, 279, 39 homers. It's more of a question of health than talent with those two. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. uh, coming in uh, at 8th with 36 homers, 284 average, 25 stolen bases. But here's the big surprise. Uh, The last two, 9th and 10th. Um, kind of similar looking dudes. Can you, should I make you try and guess? No, that's okay. You can share them. All right. Peter Alonso and Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, I mean, I had the, had the table homers. open, so it wouldn't have been fair. <laughs> I would have looked oh, okay. <laughs> un- unfairly. Yes, I'll right. guess. Yeah, exactly. You should have said yes. Is it Peter Alonso and Kyle Schwarber? <laughs> Uh, but uh, 41 homers for Peter Alonso, the 289 average, which is surprising people. But uh, if you head on over to Savant, you will see that Pete Alonso um, had the second highest max exit velocity in baseball last year. Uh, we know that's significant, 118.3, uh, sitting in between Sanchez and Vlad Guerrero. But Alonso had almost twice the barrel rate as Vlad Guerrero. Uh, so he doesn't have the same sort of flawed, yeah, I would say flawed swing path. I think Vlad Guerrero can fix it, but in his first goal at the league, uh, Vlad did hit too many balls on the ground. So, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Alonzo is up there with the Titans, the Judges, the Sanchez's, the Stantons, when it comes to uh, quality contact. And I could actually see him out hitting... Um, his sort of traditional metric-based uh, uh, projections because they focus so much on the 26% strikeout rate. Uh, and that's why they keep giving him 250 batting averages. But he had a 260 batting average last year with a 280 BABIP. And a guy who hits the ball that hard could have, you know, like a 330 BABIP easily. Yeah, he's he's a player I just don't have yet this season. And it's partially because of the high price in snake drafts. I think in auctions, it's a little more likely to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I talked to an analyst with a team who thought that, uh, you know, there was an idea that he peaked, he, he, he hit the ground running with his peak, and he's only going to regress from here going forward because of the, the contact issues and all that. And I talked to a player, a person with a team who said, absolutely not. Like, cool. The, the the batter ball profile can fill in in ways like we don't even have all of the data in terms of batter ball profile and it can fill in in ways that would be beneficial to him. Also, he had uh, single digit swinging strike rates in the minors at all stops except for AAA. Um, so there is a chance that he he cuts that strikeout rate. Uh, at 25, it's probably only two or three years of cutting the strikeout rate, but he's starting at 26. Stanton started at you know 30 something, 33 or something. So if he starts at 26 and cuts it down to 24, uh, 23, he could have a season where he hits 280, 290 with with uh, 55 homers. I mean that's that's on the table. Well, it leaves us with a question that actually had crossed my mind earlier this week, and I wasn't in a place to write it down on outline for us. So maybe we'll save this for Tuesday, but. Uh, Alonzo, I think, was exactly the player who I was looking at when this thought occurred to me. Which is more sticky, the high A and double A strikeout rates over the span of about two seasons or the initial strikeout rate at the big league level? You know, like which which of those numbers means more? They both mean something. And, and how do we 
how do we rectify one against the other when it comes to players like Pete Alonso? Because my my brain tells me that I should believe he can improve his K rate simply because he struck out less against inferior competition. Which, when you start to break it down, you're like, well, wait a minute. Maybe that doesn't matter as much as I think it does. Like being able to crush pitchers who aren't nearly as good as the guys you're going to see going forward in the big leagues doesn't mean you're a lock to get down to that K rate over time. Like there's something else that has to happen for a player to repeat minor league strikeout rates against big league competition, especially when you're doing as much damage as a guy like Pete Alonso does. Yeah, and there's some variability in terms of the how the different projection systems treat that. I mean, Steamer has them at a 25.3 next year, and uh, the Bat has them at 26.1. So there's some there's some there's some spread there. Um, I think I know that like uh, MLEs are a big deal here. The Major League equivalency of those strikeout rates. So you know, an 18.5 percent strikeout rate in A ball is different than the 18.3% strikeout rate he had in double A in terms of what those would translate to in the major leagues. Um, and I don't think that necessarily he can go back to having an 18% strikeout rate. I'm not saying that, but I do think that those strikeout rates um, describe some upside, you know? Yeah, no, I think that that gives you hope that the initial strikeout rate in the big leagues is not a baseline, even if, previous low strikeout rates in the minors aren't actually an attainable ceiling if that makes sense yeah. so maybe more to wonder, explore here but but triple a matters too i mean his strikeout rate jumped at triple a in 2018 it did but it, it, that's so weird to me because triple a is where you keep your 26 you know your 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 14th 15th and 16th pitchers you know what i mean well yeah but keston here had the same thing like keston here had a lower yeah. k rate just like pete alonzo jumped up at triple a and then was up another level even in his debut, but yeah, it's a it's a weird idea because the 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 fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth pitchers on a staff on a major league staff are gonna have a, a better sense of how to use their stuff in terms of sequencing and um, location strategies and stuff like that, right? Whereas in Double A, you're gonna have better arms in terms of velo and stuff, but they won't necessarily know uh, where to place it. They won't maybe be that great at game planning. Uh, or sequencing, so maybe that's the real big difference. There is uh, more of a attack strategy against you. I mean, I talked to Mookie Betts about how when he got to Double A, the big jump for him was that now they had four game series, and in the fourth game, he could tell what they were trying to do to him. Oh, he could catch up on the game plan a bit. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that maybe the big difference between AAA and Double A is that professionalism. Yeah, and it it presents different challenges for hitters. So solving that depends on different skills, perhaps than yeah what than got you that low K rate earlier. Mash high velocity, like right. He obviously has no trouble hitting high velocity. Uh, so if he hit a a, a a guy in Double A that had great stuff and great velocity, uh, he had no trouble with that. So maybe the the jump in strikeout rate suggests that he can be pitched to. Uh, and then if you look at that in terms of uh, his splits, and I don't, these aren't very predictive, uh, but they, you know, it is interesting that his higher strikeout rates, his highest strikeout rate came in September, October. Um, and, you know, maybe there was an adjustment back in terms of the league. But, you know, his worst, uh, his worst month last year, he was 4% better than league average. And, 
Uh, he pretty much raked in the first half and the second half. So I, I don't think there's much risk with Alonso. Um, and this StatCast projection suggests to me that, um, you know, I've missed out because I don't have that many shares either. Right. And this StatCast projection is looking at things differently than traditional projection systems, which is why it's such an interesting piece that Jeff put up. Uh, but it leaves us with a, a question that, again, I think we'll probably answer on a future episode. You know, what might enable a player to improve against breaking balls and off-speed pitches? Because I wonder if there's a pattern where guys who have no problem with big league velocity have those lower K rates up through double A, hit triple A. They see the sequencing. They see better breaking balls, at least com- breaking balls of better command and better sequencing. K rate jumps there. They see that even more in the big leagues. K rate stays up at that triple A level. When then can we look for improvement? What would tell us that it's there? Not a question we could answer, you know, in the minute we have left, but a question. One to last think thing. About. Malik Smith got the worst projected OPS, man. I am so glad I, ha- I have well, I have one share. <laughs> you only have that, one. That you're one not, share that you're we not, you're not about flush with him. Yeah. I am so sad about that one share, but (laughs) I wanted to just now be able to say I have no shares, but that damn one share. At least I got Joe Adele with him. If I could just mash them together, they'd be an amazing player. Just just convince the Angels to give Adele that opportunity. Let's do this drastic surgery. (laughs) Adele's power with Malik Smith's legs. Bionic man? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. But if you're enjoying the show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. We really appreciate everybody who's done that. It only takes a minute or two, and it goes a long way to help other people find the show. If you'd like a free 90-day trial to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash free 90 days will bring you to a page where you can get that. If you're ready to sign up for a paid subscription, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. We appreciate all of you for listening and for reading and for supporting The Athletic, of course, during this time. As always, you can find us via email at ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Just spell out the word and if you do that. He's at Eno Saris on Twitter. I am at Derek Van Riper. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.